0: Hello. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about all the terminology when it comes to sustainable design, because it can be a complete minefield. And I'm also going to share with you why knowledge about sustainable design matters and why our homes have the capacity to make a huge and positive impact on us and the environment when we seek to achieve sustainability in our home designs. So let's dive in. So join me now. Now, it's a super windy day outside, so hopefully the sound of this podcast isn't being impacted by that. But yeah, there's a lot of wind going on outside my home. But the title of this episode today is Terminology, the Sustainability Minefield and Why Should We Care? And seriously, when it comes to building or renovating a sustainable home, it gets a whole new level of terminology. So here's some that you may have heard used. There's energy efficient design. There's environmentally sustainable design, environmentally friendly building, sustainable sustainable development, passive solar design, passive design, passive house, spelled H-O-U-S-E or H-A-U-S, the German way. Triple bottom line design, which is sometimes coined as people, profit, planet, or social, environmental, and economic there's life cycle design and costing, there's carbon footprint, there's net zero housing, there's building science, there's low tox, low volatile organic compounds, embodied energy of building materials, a thermal mass, green building. Oh, look, this is by no means an exhaustive list. And, you know, this area of home design, it's a really terminology rich area and there's loads more. And, you know, are you confused yet? look, I'm not going to define all of these terms, Look, not right away anyway. This is not what this episode's going to be. I'm not just going to sit here and do these terms and then give you definitions. You will definitely hear some of them come up as this season rolls out. Um, but to be frank, I sometimes feel that all this terminology does is um, it confuses us more than it actually helps us. And I feel that as soon as we've got a handle on some part of the conversation or one definition, then someone will come along with another criteria or term for sustainable design and it'll unravel our understanding and our confidence and I actually think confusion is one of the biggest barriers for homeowners in creating sustainable homes Uh, and it's one of the reasons that I'm calling this season a simple guide to a sustainable home because I'm aiming to keep the information that we share here simple to understand and simple to execute as well this is about giving you the ability to choose in a more informed way and to put into action what you learn So in this episode, I want to help you understand why this actually matters. Many homeowners tell me that when it gets all too hard, overwhelming, and frustrating, you know, they say to me, look, does it really matter? They'll ask if it's worth all the effort that it seems to be taking, and I can really understand how hard it is sometimes. You know, not every designer is passionate about creating sustainable homes that make the most of your site and its environment. And so if you as the homeowner feel you're having to convince your designer who's supposed to be the expert as to why this is so essential to you, then, you know, that can get exhausting. And I've seen this recently, actually. One of the recent Australian members of my How to Get It Right in Your Reno or New Home online course, she's hit this issue with her home. She's planning an extension to her existing home. It sits on a corner. So one street's on the western side of the home and the other street is on the northern side of the home. So the orientation of the house is less than ideal and she's extending living spaces to the rear of the home, so to that southern side and opening out onto a south-facing garden. And on the eastern side of the home. There's another tall home that overshadows theirs. And she'd been listening to Undercover Architect for a while and then participated, of course, in How to Get It Right. And there, you know, inside that course, amongst other things, I talk a lot about orientation and designing for the movement of the sun. And, you know, she knew that her designers and what her designer had done wasn't working uh, as well as she felt it should be to access Northern Light into the home. And she literally felt worn because she would pushed and tried so hard to achieve it in the design and to give the designer feedback that, you know, to say how important it was her to have some Northern Light into her living spaces. And she just didn't feel like it was going to happen, that the designer was really going to take this on board. And in fact, when she actually asked her architect, how was she going to keep her south-facing home warm in winter, um, because it wasn't capturing a lot of northern light, his response was a heater. So, you know, now she's feeling defeated and also nervous about committing to the design because of what she's learned. And You know, I find that a lot of homeowners have to contend with this and it infuriates me and it breaks my heart. And, you know, not all designers are trained in the importance of designing for orientation or targeting a sustainable home design. And some designers who design for warmer climates just think that keeping the sun out is all you really need to do. There are other designers who will simply arrange rooms based on their connection with each other and the outdoors and then how they fit on the site overall and then meet local planning and building rules. And they leave behind all of that designing for orientation and designing for site suitability and climate suitability. And so when you become an educated homeowner, as you as a, as a podcast listener of Undercover Architect and a blog reader of Undercover Architect, you know, you're becoming an educated homeowner who's savvy about design, building and renovating, you know, it's so key that you find a like-minded designer who you won't have to battle with. Or um, failing that, that you keep yourself informed so that you have this information to convince them how uh so that they realize how important this is to you. Because, you know, let's be frank, we've been building and renovating homes in a fairly similar way for decades now. And there's advancement in materials and products and construction methodology. But for mainstream projects, you know, for the average home, it's getting put together in a fairly similar way to what it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's still very traditional, it's labor intensive, and it's comparatively slow. And, you know, for all the 3D printing and the robotic technology that you might see on YouTube and Facebook that builds all these homes very inexpensively and fast – you know, it can be hard to see how this will actually reach mainstream anytime soon and how the residential construction industry is going to advance at the same rate that a lot of other industries have, you know. And the carpenter is still swinging a hammer, the bricky's still laying bricks one at a time, and the plaster is still fixing individual sheets to frames and applying wet plaster to cover the joints. You know, there's a, there are definitely things that have sped this up slightly and tools and resources and material developments, you know, or they've made things simpler or safer overall, but it's It's all still pretty traditional when you look at it and really the residential construction industry hasn't advanced at the same rate that a lot of other industries have so as i said i thought it would be best to kick off this season in a way that helps you understand why this information about sustainable design actually matters and you know why it even matters to try and create a sustainably designed home in whatever way you are capable of you know that every little step towards positive change counts Our homes have a huge capacity to create positive change for us and the environment overall. This doesn't have to be an all or nothing conversation. Remember, incremental change is a great way to achieve huge momentum and shifts overall. Now, if you still need convincing as to why this is important and why seeking sustainable design, building and renovating can have a huge impact, I've collected together some key research and information Look, I know anytime I share this, it often surprises people about how impactful change in the residential industry can be because of the impact that the residential industry has, all right? So, let's look at some statistics and facts to illustrate the impact of our home on us and on the environment, both as we build them or renovate them and as we occupy them, okay? Okay. So the first fact that I have is our home's impact. Our homes actually use a lot of energy. Now I've got some information from the Energy Ratings website about a document that was commissioned by the Australian government and it was issued in 2008. I'll pop the link in the show notes if you wanna check out the website yourself, you can also download a copy of the report. So it was commissioned by the Australian government And it was looking at energy use in the Australian residential sector from 1986 to 2020. And it was the second national baseline study on residential energy use. So as I said, it was released in 2008 and it stated that between 1990 and 2020, they predicted that the number of occupied residential households was forecast to increase from 6 million to almost 10 million. So an increase of 61%. And over the same period, total residential floor area was set to rise from 685 million square meters to almost 1,682 million square meters, or an increase of 145%. Okay. So we had a 61%, we're predicting a 61% increase in the number of homes, but 145% increase in the total floor area of, of residential construction. Now, it also stated that energy consumption in the residential sector was predicted to increase uh, by 56%. Okay. So as I said, this report was written in 2008. So I did some online research to find out what the current figures actually are. And it's 2018 now. So I found a 2017 update, which actually put the uh, the energy use, the annual consumption for the 2015 to 2016 financial year at 457 petajoules. All right. Now, in this report, they were predicting that at 2020, we were gonna be at 402 petajoules. 2015 to 2016 figures show that we're at 457 petajoules. So we're already exceeding what they anticipated for 2020 levels by quite a good chunk. So we're growing the number of our homes, The size of our homes is increasing and our energy use overall is increasing as well. And meanwhile, the number of people per home is declining. So really weird combination of stats that just show the dent that our homes are having in our energy use overall. Now, in terms of how we use energy in a home, 40% of it is on heating and cooling the home itself. Okay. So can you imagine you get your home being thermally comfortable without all of that artificial heating and cooling? That's a great big chunk out of your electricity budget. Water heating actually comprises 21% of our energy use with appliances around 33% and lighting is at about 6%. Now the low lighting level of energy use is in large part due to the push for more energy efficient lighting um, that's happened at building code levels over the past couple of decades. There's been a big push to have more and more energy efficient lighting in our home and you can see how much that significantly reduced lighting's energy use in our homes overall. Now so, first fact: our homes use a lot of energy. Second fact: our homes' energy use impacts the environment long term. So, the EPA Victoria website tells us that Australian households generate at least one fifth, so twenty percent, of Australia's greenhouse gases. It's more than eighteen tonnes per household per year. All right. So. The averages provide only part of the picture because households can vary greatly in the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. So depending on where you live and your lifestyle, the annual greenhouse gas emissions can vary from as low as three tonnes up to 30 tonnes or more. Now let's compare this to car use, okay? So car use is always seen as a big source of greenhouse gas emission. The EPA website tells us that a typical passenger vehicle emits about 4.6 tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. So that's, you know, around that five tonnes. And we're looking at homes producing 18 tons per year. All right. Now, remember, I'm not telling you this information. I said it in the first episode last week. I'm not providing this information to you so you can throw your hands up in the air and say it's all hopeless. We're doomed anyway. I can't make a difference. What I love about knowing this information is how simply we can actually make an impact on what's happening in homes around Australia. So I'm gonna be diving into some super simple and impactful wins in next week's episode, but you know, have a think about this as a starter. If a home is designed well so that it reduces the need for lighting during daylight hours, and then the home is also thermally comfortable so it reduces the need for artificial heating and cooling, this can have a dramatic impact on our overall energy, use and our greenhouse gas emission for our homes okay and natural lighting and thermal comfort can be achieved really simply by designing for the movement of the sun all right so we're going to talk about that and some more helpful strategies that anyone doing any renovation or any building project can put into action all right we'll be chatting about that next week now, I've got more facts for you, okay? So don't tune out. I find these are actually, for me, these are really good motivators because, um, because I like to know this information so that we can actually see just what we have within our control to really make a dent on the environment and on our homes, okay? Now, the third fact is that the materials we use to build our home from, they also have a hidden energy, okay? So, building materials can consume huge amounts of energy to source, to fabricate, and then to transport to our construction sites. Now, this hidden energy, it's it's referred to as embodied energy, and that was one of the terms I set up front. And it can actually be one way that you can rank your decisions as you're making uh, and choosing materials and products for your home. So the CSIRO actually has a chart that illustrates the difference in embodied energy in various building materials. And so again, I'm going to share some more actionable information on this in a later episode this season. But in the meantime, I'll pop the chart into this episode's blog so that you can uh, head to Undercover Architect website to see that. It can be really interesting to see how embodied energy is impacted by the fact that we might use more of a material in our homes. So even though the material itself might have lower embodied energy, the fact that we're using more of it means that overall we'll have a higher embodied energy. So check out that chart and I'll be as I said, I'll be going to be sharing more about if you want to use this as a ranking decision for your choices, I'm going to share more about how to do that simply in a future episode. You know, one of the things I experienced early in my career was I actually worked for a few years on the Olympic Games site in Sydney. And so the architectural practice that I worked for, we were lead consultants over the public domain. So what that means is we were in charge of implementing the master plan that had been designed by an overseas designer and then we were basically designing all of the in-between areas in between all of the stadiums and you know facilities that were at the olympic site so if you are familiar with the sydney olympic site you may be familiar with the big lighting towers that march down the main boulevard you know we designed those Um, all the street lighting signage paving street furniture we were involved in designing and coordinating all of the consultants and suppliers that were involved in the manufacturing and installing of them you know i actually remember i remember being in my 20s and uh a and designing a shelter for garbage bins for about four weeks. <laughs> so part of the bid for the Sydney Olympics had um, to the International Olympic Committee was that it would be the Green Games. And so part of The pledge was that every material that we were selecting, and this happened across the entire site, so anybody involved in any project on that, the material was audited for its environmental sustainability. So there were specialist consultants on board who analysed every material, every component, every supplier for how it rated against a series of benchmarks for environmental performance. It was a super complex process. I remember just the hours that were spent on understanding this and reporting on it. And look, this is totally unrealistic for the uninitiated homeowner to undertake in their build or renovation. There are, however, some overarching philosophies and strategies that you can use when thinking about material selection. And so we're definitely gonna get more into that during the season, okay? It is worth remembering, however, that even though a material may have a high embodied energy, if it has a long uh, and durable lifespan, then you can almost balance those two things out. So high embodied energy, but over a long lifespan, then that can be balanced out. But if you're choosing high embodied energy materials that you're gonna regularly replace and discard, then that's gonna be taxing on the environment. Choosing recycled materials, materials with recycled components, you know, they can certainly reduce their embodied energy and they're a very simple way to improve the impact that your home has on the environment. Choosing materials that are sourced locally that haven't had to travel long distances to you, that's another way to lower their embodied energy use. So more and more of these types of materials are available on the market these days. And as I said, we're going to talk more about it in a later episode. Now, fourth fact, okay, and this is the one that often shocks people, all right? So, we know that our homes are big energy users. We know that building materials have uh, can have high embodied energy. We know that our home's energy use can emit greenhouse gases, but did you know that the buildings we live in and work in are actually making us sick? So, Australians spend... 80 to 90% or more of their time indoors. All right. And some stats say as little as 3% of our time is spent outdoors. Now, the CSIRO estimates that the cost of poor indoor air quality in Australia may be as high as $12 billion per year. That's billion with a B. All right. So, common air pollutants in residential homes include carbon monoxide, benzene. Toluene, ethyl benzene and xylene, nitrogen dioxide and volatile organic compounds. And the CSIRO actually ran an interesting study in 2008 to 2009 where they surveyed 40 Australian homes and they were testing the air quality over that pe- period. And I'm going to pop a link to this report, uh, in the show notes. Now, this showed how homes have changed since the 1950s because in the 1950s, we had lead, mercury, and oil-based paints, and those were the kinds of prevalent chemicals. Now, it's plastics, chlorofluorocarbons and volatile organic compounds and these chemicals are actually impacting the quality of our indoor air environment which that can then impact our health and our well-being and I know that some of the undercover architect community have an interest in low-tox living and so this will be an area that some of you may have already explored in the products that you use inside your home so we'll also be looking at how you can make material selections and product selections to support a healthier indoor air environment and who can support you in your choices. So what kind of professionals you need to work with. And some of these choices, they can be a simple switch in and out, all right, with a product that you may all be cho- already be choosing. Uh, and it's not an additional cost. It's just about knowing some information and choosing a different brand. Okay. Now, fifth fact is that building a home can actually be a wasteful activity. So The construction industry generated the largest volume of waste with over 16.5 million tonnes, which represented 31%, so that's almost a third of the total waste generated between 2009 and 2010. So remember when I mentioned the Olympic Games earlier? One One of the strongest environmental measures that was implemented in Sydney's Green Olympic Games was a waste management policy for all of construction. So materials were managed to reduce waste in offcuts, and then the waste was recycled for other uses as well. Now, I remember seeing that project, like seeing that site under construction. I got to be on that site for for a few years and seeing just the scale of construction happening, all of the Olympic Village, all of the big stadiums. It was quite an exercise to see the different types of bins and the way that waste and offcuts were sorted. And you know, the things that could be reused or disposed in the right way. Now, there are some builders out there doing residential new builds and renovations that adopt a similar strategy. You know, some of them do this because they're passionate about the environment. Others do it because they know that they can recoup costs in recycling materials and waste products. You know, and sometimes it's a combination of both. It's definitely a worthwhile conversation to have with your builder about your project before you choose them. You know, ask them, How do you manage waste on the site? How do you separate things that can potentially be recycled? Do you have strategies for minimizing your waste overall? What I find is that builders who don't do this as a matter of normal practice, they often say that it takes longer, it's not worth the effort, and it will cost more. However, builders who do it well and regularly, they'll often count, have a counterpoint of view. They'll say that you know it actually reduces their disposal costs overall, and with some planning, it can save time and earn money back on the job as well. So Dwayne Pierce, for example, who's a you know a regular friend of the podcast, he has D Pierce Constructions. He shares on his company Facebook page how they spend the beginning of of a project when they're doing a renovation or a demolition, pulling out materials that can be reused, recycled, or sold. And a few days labor can actually recoup significant savings in products and materials that you can sell or reuse, and also a reduction in skip bin and disposal costs. You know, waste management can be a huge cost saving as well as an environmental one. And I often tell homeowners inside my courses, you pay for the whole material, all right? So you buy a you know, a sheet of plasterboard, you pay for the whole sheet of plasterboard, whether it all gets used in your home or two thirds of it gets thrown in the bin. All right. So you need to understand that this can actually have a massive cost benefit to you in your budget management overall, as well as an environmental one. Now, lastly, fact number six, and I touched on this earlier, our homes are actually getting bigger. Now, Australians do build amongst the largest homes in the world. You know, the average size of an Australian home is around the 245 square meter mark. Only 30 years ago, it was around 162 square meters, you know, and meanwhile, the average size of our families has got smaller. And I find that when I do design work for clients, the homes I'm designing are bigger than that. You know, they're up around the 350 to 500 square meter mark. Uh, you know, I've chatted with Sean Lockyer about the homes that he's designing for his clients. They're all very large homes. So, you know, in, and in, in 2009, so the figures are a little bit old, but in 2009, it showed that the USA's average was around the 201 square meter mark and Canada was 181 square meters. And comparing this to denser locations such as China, China was 60 square meters, Japan 95 square meters. So what's actually more interesting, you know, we can think, okay, well, we're building bigger homes, but it's when you actually examine the residential floor space per person. So China, Hong Kong, Russia, they're all really compact. You know, they're around that 15 square meter per person to 22 square meters per person. In Australia, we're looking at 89 square meters per person. And USA and Canada are in the 70s square meters per person. So 77 and 72 square meters. So you can see there's a big difference. You know, 15 square meters per person compared to 89 square meters per person. That's a big difference. Now, there is more space in Australia. You know, our suburbs are bigger. We have more space to build in. That is, that is definitely, you know, true. But our desire for big open areas and large Places to live, it's, it's going, it does and it, it continues to have an impact on our energy consumption to do so and the types of environments that we're creating for ourselves and for our families to live in. And interestingly, when I think back to projects that I was designing, say 10 to 15 years ago, before my kids were born, you know, I was working on a big residential development in Brisbane, had over 150 homes in it and an apartment building. The riverfront homes in that development, they were the premium product in that development. They were four bedroom homes with two car garage and two living spaces. There was no butler's pantry. Uh the living spaces they were generous back then but now I actually think they'd be considered a little compact. The fourth bedroom was one that doubled as a guest room or as a study, so there wasn't the fifth bedroom being added or the home office. There was no laundry chute, there was no mudroom, there was no walk-in linen. You know, it's not that long ago and yet I find now it's very standard for homes uh for, for clients to ask for homes that are that 400 square meter plus in size. And that they have a range of spaces that we were, you know, quite happy to do without as little as a decade ago. Now, if you're building a big home, this is not a criticism of your choices. Please let me be clear about that. You can make a financially uh, and and environmentally sustainable home that is fantastic for your health and well-being. That is also large. All right, that's possible and doable. And I know lots of homeowners that are doing it. What I suppose I'm trying to say is that. It's just become the norm of what we expect uh, we want when we're thinking about building or renovating, okay? People just have a standard thing that they roll out and that standard thing now is bigger and different to what it was 10 to 15 years ago. And it may not always be what we actually need as a family or what we can afford. And so I found it really interesting personally in our own home. You know, we moved into our own home four years ago And it's an occupational hazard of mine that the minute that I, you know, look at a house, I figured out and started planning how I'd renovate and change it. It's a big joke amongst my friends that, you know, uh, I've already renovated their house in my head before, you know, they've even thought about it. And, you know, so the minute that we put an offer in on the house that we're living in now, I started these ideas churning in my brain and they're big ideas. They were big changes, extra rooms, extra spaces. And then of course that was going to have a big cost. And so at the same time I went, okay, it's not going to be feasible for some time, you know, fair few years down the track, we may be able to afford to do this. Now, as we've lived here and I see Where we actually spend our time, how we use the home and hang out in it together, what we actually need has become far more visible to me. And I think, too, I have the benefit of where I live regionally is that I'm not surrounded so regularly by the sort of those societal pressures of, you know, for your home to be the right kind of home, it has to look a certain way. I do have the benefit of that where I live. So the grand ideas that I have, they're becoming far more humble and far more suitable to our lifestyle and what we need. And interestingly, they actually don't feel like a compromise. They feel more achievable. And I just keep thinking it's less for me, you know, for us as a family to maintain, to clean, to heat and cool, to take care of overall. And, you know, and they could actually happen sooner if we wanted them to. And so we've also been able to consider what is a priority in the overall plan as well so that we can chunk it down and stage things too, which again makes it possible to achieve sooner. So what can you and your home do about all of this? Look, I have taken you through, if you're still tuned in, congratulations okay um because this is this is there's some big and harsh facts in in this episode about the impact that our homes can have on us and the environment both during construction and when they're completed and some of it's pretty dry to listen to as well so congratulations on being here in this episode now sometimes these statistics do sound overwhelming far too complex to make inroads on and especially if it's just you and your family and your home you can feel like it's just a drop in the ocean With any journey though, the first step that you take can have a radical impact on where you end up. And this is the same for home building and renovating. And the thing is that is most exciting when it comes to building and renovating is that when you make your first step in your journey in an informed and strategic way, doesn't cost you anymore it can actually save you money overall both in the creation and in the long-term use of your home and what's even more exciting is that these things can make your home less toxic and less taxing on the environment and that these are the very things that will help make the home a great design overall I'm not talking about high-end elitist glossy magazine design here I'm talking about the truest definition of design design that is durable durable functional, timeless, that makes your life better, simpler, more beautiful, more peaceful, more content. All right. Now, I've quoted Seth Godin before. I think he said it best when he said design is about function everything we do has a job and if it's designed properly the job will get done well so if you're getting despondent about and disappointed about your budget you're feeling like you've got champagne tastes on a beer budget you know your wishes for your new home or your renovation they just don't seem to align with what you've got to spend on it remember this all right prioritizing design when you start your journey, it doesn't cost any more. It simply changes that first step of your journey and it helps you know that your destination will actually be a home that will be worth the effort, the time, the energy and the money that you're investing in it for you, your family and the environment because this is sustainable design in its truest sense. It's design that supports you in the world, supports how you impact the world and it's in your health and your well-being, your financial health, the quality of your indoor environment and the impact that you have on the environment. And so now we've set the stage for why this is so important. We're gonna be diving into more information as this season rolls out to give you some actionable steps and strategies for your sustainable home, okay? So tune in next week because I'm gonna be kicking off with some simple, super impactful wins in creating a sustainable home. So this is gonna be really helpful you just getting going straight away in your project now meanwhile please remember please share this season and the podcast generally with friends of yours who are planning to build or renovate i am so passionate about providing access to great quality information and professional expertise to really help you get it right in your future family home And also, please, if you haven't, head to iTunes, subscribe, rate the podcast, leave a review. You know, subscribing means that you'll be the first to know when new podcasts go live and rating and reviewing it is really the best way to help others find the podcast and see if it's relevant for them. Now, there were quite a few uh, resources and um, reports that I cited in this episode. So I'm going to pop all of the resources for it into the show notes And uh, you can head there and do any further investigation yourself. And as always, huge, huge gratitude to you, my gorgeous listener. Thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.